Jesus, we um, we love you. And we know that tonight um, and what happens now and all the stuff that we've done so far, it's as Ricky said earlier in that song, it is about building this foundation of love in our lives that will overflow into the lives of other people. Your love. So we give you this message. I've got a habit of talking rubbish at times. So Jesus, wait. what you want to say tonight, may it be said. May my weird rossisms not get in the way. And most importantly, may this not just be a, a, a chance to have a chat and a talk, but a chance to hear from the living God. We recognize and acknowledge that you are present with us. And that this whole life, in, in all its complexities, means nothing, Jesus, if you are not the center. Nothing makes sense. Nothing is as good if you are not involved, if you are not at the center of all we do. We love you. Our Father, our God, our friend. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an incredibly beautiful, reflective atmosphere that I think has been part of the worship. I'm very grateful to Ricky and the team for leading us in that. But I know um, very well as a person who does this on a regular basis that when the atmosphere is as such, we tend to drift and sleep within the first five minutes rather than ten. Therefore, to gain an extra bit of concentration throughout the message, why don't you turn and talk to the person next to you for a couple of minutes and chat about the generalities of life. Go. That's great. Can you all look at me and give me a really creepy Christian smile? Yeah? Instantly already more engaged. It may seem silly, but it works. I don't know about you, but I've been impressed by Judah's ability to run around the church. I think you've done more laps um, of running in general than I think I've done in months. His fitness puts me to shame. Caleb, stop looking at me. He's giving me a look that agrees. Who likes um, baddies in movies? Anyone? It can't just be me. Like, I've got this weird obsession. I really like the baddies in the movie. I'll watch a movie solely based on the fact that I've heard the baddie is quite sinister and maybe well-acted and, and a good character. Some of my favorites, if you'd indulge me for a moment, what about Bane? 
who love Bane in the... <laughs> this is actually a, a picture of Clive before, before Muttley. <laughs> it's taken it off recently. <laughs> uh, Bane is played by Thomas Hardy, probably one of the hardest and most attractive actor, male actors there are. Um, this man is, is strong, fearsome in this particular film, and the Bane mask. Can anyone do the impression well? Amazing. I didn't think anyone would do that. That was absolutely amazing. He has this really kind of creepy-sounding voice. Brilliant character. Uh, my, my other favorite is, is the Joker from Batman as well, sadly with Heath Ledger. Fantastic actor. Night's Tale, brilliant movie if you get a chance to watch it. Um, but in this movie, he's just so unhinged in every single way, yet in comparison to everyone he's with, he's, he's, a, he's a genius. Absolute genius, the way he puts together his plots, his evil plots, but he puts them together and works everyone into these scary evil plots to destroy Gotham City and Batman himself. What about this one? These are probably not photos, actually, but if you're showing at the front of church, I'm realizing this as I'm doing it. This is Jesse um, from, from Breaking Bad, a series I obviously haven't watched, but love. And, and, and Jesse, what I like about his particular character is he's a real baddie, but throughout the whole series, he seems to be used as a pawn in loads of manipulative games. So you always feel sorry for him, and you always kind of like him. You're like, oh, Jesse, how did you get yourself into that situation again? But yet, he's always in that situation. He kind of likes that situation, and he's very good at that situation. The murder and all that other stuff helps. He's a baddie, but you kind of feel sorry for him. And the reason I say this is when we come to the, the last chapters of Luke's Gospel... Um, there's a really kind of sinister undercurrent, a dark undercurrent to all of it. There are many baddies. And I think sometimes when we read these chapters, we read them with kind of rose-tinted spectacles on. We go, well, we know the outcome. We know Jesus will die, yes, but he'll be raised again. Therefore, it's good, right? So we look through the story, and we hear all the stuff about his death. We hear all these stories about this plan to have Jesus killed. We kind of just go through it quickly and go, yeah, but it ends well in the end. It's glorious. But yet the reality is it's anything but glorious, what we're talking about in the story at the end of Luke's gospel and the other gospels is ultimately the, the death of an innocent man, more than that, the murder of an innocent man. We're talking about most of the chapters are this plan to have Jesus killed. That's the reality of what we're, we're reading about. We're reading about friends who betray people they love. We're reading about religious leaders who should be upright in society, turning on people who they should be looking for and supporting we're talking about a man who was nailed to, to a cross, the, the, the worst form of execution the Romans could possibly muster up, and allowed to slowly suffocate for hours. That's the reality of what we're talking about. And yet we can so often put it in this, through these rose-tinted spectacles. The killing plan. This is what we see throughout these chapters, this, this plan of four baddies in particular. And I want to, baddies is maybe not a helpful word. I just like it because it's sad, but at the same time, we can all, we all like baddies a little bit. So I want to explore some of the baddies that we see in this particular story. The first is the priests. And this is the most sinister picture I could find of the Pharisees and the, and the elders, the masterminds behind this whole plan, these religious leaders who are a bit frustrated with Jesus. They want to develop a plan to kill him. Why? Because of the fact he's been challenging them on a regular basis. He says their religion is hypocritical, it's corrupt. They need to change their ways. His whole being, who he is, what he stands for, is so different. They present religion. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And you get to God, and he says, no. Coming to God is free. Enter into a relationship with the living God through me. He spends time with the poor, the marginalized, and the vulnerable, and challenges their, their rich, 
upper class status. He challenges so much about the Pharisees. And to add insult to injury, he's seen as a false messiah and someone who blasphemes. How can you call God Father, Jesus? That's not language appropriate with the God that we love and we worship. He challenges everything about them. Therefore, what's their solution? Have him killed. How do they have him killed? They need to find someone who's close to Jesus, someone who can bring Jesus to them in order that they can do their dirty work. And this is where we join the story. Luke chapter 22, verse 1 to 6. We're going to kind of explore the baddies as we go through the story and maybe put a bit of a spin on some of these chapters that we normally read very easily through these rose-tinted spectacles. So Luke 22, verse 1 to 6. I think this is sad. Now the festival of leavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and two officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray them. They were delighted and agreed to give him the money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them no, when no crowd was present. Of all places, you should be able to go, right, and, and, and have some sense of integrity and um, non-corruptness, which I suppose is integrity, would be the temple, the place of worship, the place where you expect to come and meet with God, would be to the local religious leaders. What's terrifying for me is, and Clive, I think, is that that's the pastors, right, of the day. That's surely where you should find some sense of integrity and people to support you. And yet here, a murder is being organized, And this is where we meet the second baddie, Judas, the traitor, someone who's Jesus' friend. For three years, they've been ministering together, the the, the treasurer of their group of disciples. Judas should love Jesus. Jesus certainly loves Judas. And yet, he's willing to give up his friend, not only give him up, but have him killed for some money. It's hard, isn't it, to have sympathy for Judas. In my mind, he's a real slime ball. (laughs) That's the reality of it. Willing to give up someone you love and a friend, a close friend, for money. How could you possibly do that? He's the second buddy. And then the story takes a horrible turn in Luke 22, verse 47 to 53, if you've got your Bibles. While he was speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and one of the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come to him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. So they've got their killing plan in motion quite smoothly, really. Everything seems to be going to plan. They've got Judas this, this character who 
it says there that he went to the Pharisees. I've always had the suspicion in my spirit, whether I'm right or not, that there must have been a potential conversation that's gone on previously or awareness that the Pharisees want someone to portray Jesus. It all seems a bit too convenient, but either way, this plan is going fairly well. The only issue they have now is that they can kill Jesus if they want to kill Jesus, but then it's a murder and they can get in real trouble. Obviously, reputations are ruined. So how do they kill Jesus legally? That's the issue the Pharisees now have. They need to go to the, the, the local authorities. The authorities at this time are the Romans. If they can persuade the Romans to kill Jesus, then we have a clean killing. He's done away with. Their reputations are intact. In fact, they're seen as heroes because they got rid of the false Messiah, and everything works out well. So this is when we're introduced to the final two baddies of the story so far. We're introduced to Pilate, who is this political pawn, and then we're introduced to Barabbas, this thug. Luke 23, verse 13 to 25. So Jesus has been brought before. They've had all of this discussion. And Pilate seems to be quite a good character. Remember Jesse that we talked about earlier? There seems to be similarities. You kind of like Pilate. But yet, really, from verse 13 of Luke 23, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither was Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him, and then I'll release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. I don't know about you, but it is at this point that you start thinking, ah, Pilate, I mean, he tried, didn't he? He really tried. Like, he he petitioned the crowds. He said, come on, just release him. What's he really done? And, and you kind of feel sorry for him. You feel that he's been put in this situation. I mean, one, if you knew Pilate's history, you wouldn't feel sorry for him in general. But then in this particular situation, he still, at the end of the day, sacrificed integrity for his personal reputation. He knew what was right and wrong in this situation. He was releasing an innocent man to be murdered. But when push comes to shove, he was unwilling to, to damage or tarnish his reputation as a Roman official and leader, potentially cause problems with Herod, and he wanted to stay this, this rebel that was going on at the moment. So in the end, he decided to do what was wrong, knowing it was wrong, knowing it's to have an innocent man killed for the sake of keeping peace and his reputation. And what's even sadder about this story is who Pilate uses. He doesn't just hand Jesus over, but he swaps him for for Barabbas. We don't know very much about Barabbas. There's a great sermon I've heard on this by a guy called Judas, and he kind of just Barabbas just kind of appears, this random guy out of nowhere, this murderer, a leader of an insurrection, which is essentially a a violent um, rebellion against an authority or a government. He suddenly appears, and he's exchanged for this wonderfully innocent man who's done nothing but 
but demonstrate love to the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, who's, who's taught that a relationship with God is, is what counts. And that's who he's been swapped with, a murderer and a, and a man staged for insurrection. Four baddies, one killing plan, and the killing plan ultimately succeeds. Jesus is, is nailed to a cross suitable for, for the common thief and common criminals, made a spectacle of, and he dies. And I was really reflecting on this story over, over the week um, and asking, God, what is it you want to say? Because there's so many things you could bring out of this. And you know the point that really, really, really hit me hard was that I've been joking about the fact that I like baddies, but Jesus loves them. That really blows my mind. The very people that had him killed, Judas, Pilate, the Pharisees, the the priests, and and, and Barabbas, the very person he was swapped with, the murderer and leader of insurrection, he loves them. And not only that, but the very death of which they caused was ultimately if they would turn and follow him for their salvation. Because he died in order that everyone may have an opportunity to come into relationship with the living God. Does that not feel wrong somehow to a certain extent, but at the same time blow your mind at how amazing God's grace and love is? That's what I kind of felt in thinking about it. I was like, no, not Judas, he's a joke. But yeah, kind of, I get it, that's amazing. And as this killing plan is, is running alongside, it's really interesting, is it? That the whole time when it's such a bleak story, there's this other plan running alongside, the salvation plan. Because Jesus knew all along what was going to happen. He had accepted his fate. And we read about that in a story that sits in between all the stories we've just read a moment ago. The story where he has this good supper, this Passover, this last meal with his disciples. Luke 22, verse 14 to 22. And he says, sitting at the table, surrounded by those he loves most, when you think everything's going wrong and he's not going to get out of this, he says this. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at a table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, you will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this, body, this is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just before he's about to be arrested and handed over to be killed, he already knows what's coming. He's preparing his disciples, because ultimately the cross led to the resurrection. And we don't have two plans running side to side, the killing plan and the salvation plan, because in fact the two interweave and become one, because the very plan that was designed to kill Jesus and put an end to everything he stood for was the very plan that was renewed, made beautiful by God, and the very cross that stood for weakness and death became the very symbol of victory and strength, because God changed and transformed the world in an action that to everyone else seemed unmagnificent and and sick and wrong. And in fact, it became beautiful. Isn't that awesome? The God that we worship took the very plans of baddies and made them good in order that if the baddies would turn to him, they could have eternal life. Grace is scandalous. It really is scandalous. 
And I've said this before, I think sometimes we, we do, don't we? We have our list of what is acceptable as a Christian. I mean, God's grace will extend here. You might get in, you might get in. Oh, but no, too far, mate. You've pushed the boundary. God's grace can't extend there. And yet the reality is, I think when we stand in the kingdom of God with the, with the God that we worship, we'll be surrounded by a bunch of people that we're really, really surprised to see. How did you get in, mate? But yet God's grace is scandalous and is anything but fair. He extends it to every single one of us. That was the whole point of the cross, that every single one of us had the opportunity for a second chance. So the thing that stood out for me in this message was that Jesus loves the baddies. He died for the baddies. And he loves every single person in this room. And he died in order that every single person who sits before me may one day spend eternity in his presence where there is no more crying or pain. For the old order of things will have fallen away and we can spend eternity together in the blissful presence of the God that we worship who is not just loving, but love itself. Let's pray. Jesus, my my prayer is simple, and it's this, that that when we leave tonight, we may leave... um, feeling uplifted deep within our souls that we have a God who loves us beyond us, who sees everything about us and yet still loves us. And that we may go into this week uplifted by your love, by your grace, by your mercy and seek to be beacons of that love, grace and mercy to those that we come into contact with. That we will not put boundaries on your grace and your love. In your name, amen.